Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 244. Hi, I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm excited you're here, and I'm excited to bring to you today's guest, Miss Lindsay Johnson. Lindsay currently serves as the president of U.S. Mortgage Insurers, or USMI. USMI is the nation's leading private mortgage insurance association, comprised of five of the six U.S. mortgage insurance companies in the country. As president of USMI, Lindsay works with member companies to advance the value of private mortgage insurance to borrowers and taxpayers and to promote a sustainable housing finance system backed by private capital. Today we're going to be discussing all things mortgages from private mortgage insurance to the current housing public policy landscape and everything in between. Lindsay is super knowledgeable and we're going to dive in deep in a couple key areas here. So I really think you'll enjoy today's conversation. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. All right, today I welcome on the show, Ms. Lindsay Johnson. Lindsay, hey, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Jacob. I'm excited to be here. Hey, it's our pleasure. Well, Lindsay, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you kind of got started in the world of mortgage finance. Absolutely. Well, we talked before about our local connection with Pampa, Texas, and obviously yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's quite a circuitous route for me to go from Pampa, Texas to Washington, D.C. and focus on mortgage policy. But through school and through some early career choices, I ended up in D.C., focused on policy and have worked in the private sector, both at a federal home bank, which is one of the lesser known government-sponsored enterprises or GSEs. Most people know about Fannie and Freddie, but the federal home banks are really important. And then also I've worked in the private sector at PwC and other places focused on mortgage finance issues. I also worked on the Hill, Capitol Hill, working on Senate Banking Committee, focusing on obviously not just mortgage finance issues, but also other banking policy issues. And so kind of the culmination of all those different things has led me to be prepared for an opportunity to work with the mortgage insurance industry. So I've been with this industry for several years now. And, you know, we represent all the mortgage insurance or most of the mortgage insurance companies in the country who are dedicated to housing finance system that's backed by private capital. Sure. Well, that's kind of going to be the focus of the show today. PMI, private mortgage insurance, is a term maybe many of our listeners have heard about maybe on the service, but might not fully understand. So can you take just a minute and kind of tell us exactly what that is, what it means, and why it's important to real estate investors? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of folks have heard about private mortgage insurance. I think you know sometimes there's kind of either a negative reaction or sort of a grudge purchase mentality, but really private mortgage insurance plays such an important role in the housing finance ecosystem. Private mortgage insurance exists so that borrowers who are unable to put a full 20% down, 
who are typically viewed as higher risk by lenders, those borrowers are able to have access to the conventional market because private mortgage insurance insures a lender against the possible losses when that borrower might not be able to repay and there's not sufficient equity in that house to cover the amount that's owed. So we've existed for more than 60 years. We've helped more than 30 million individuals in that six decades become homeowners sooner than they otherwise could have. And in that way, we really bridge that divide between what an individual brings to the closing table and what the lender would require. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of times it's a myth to many people that you do have to put 20% down when financing maybe a home or an investment property. Now there's some workarounds if it's an investment property, of course, but many times people don't put 20% down when buying their first home. So tell us a little bit about those myths and, and dispel those, if you will. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's shocking. And I'm sure to many of your listeners, they actually may be surprised to hear that many consumers, in fact, there was a report of this summer done by Freddie Mac that suggested that almost 50% of non-homeowners state that not having enough money for a down payment and closing costs was the number one obstacle to purchasing a home. And then when you ask even further, sort of what do you expect that you would have to put down, almost 40% of those individuals said that they needed a full 20%. So there's just a lot of misinformation or a lack of information that exists out in that marketplace. And whether they're getting it from friends or family or sort of wherever that misinformation comes from, you know, my industry is keenly focused on working to dispel that myth. One of the most important things for all borrowers, and especially for first-time homebuyers, is to understand their options. If you look at sort of some of the stats around who's coming into the market right now, Almost 80% of all first-time home buyers are bringing less than 20% down. The average that someone that's either a first-time or a repeat borrower is putting down is about 13%. And for first-time home buyers last year, the average amount that they put down was about 7%. Wow, so, that's interesting. Oh, it's, it's amazing. So it's just getting the information in the right hands of the people who are still on the sidelines, sort of without that information that they don't need the full 20% down. Yeah, sure. So I can see how this relates to real estate investing, Lindsay, is one common strategy amongst beginning real estate investors is to live in a property, either say a single family house, duplex, triplex, or even a fourplex, live in one unit and rent the others out, subsidizing their mortgage, their living costs, right? And also taking advantage of that low down payment. But with that comes PMI. So tell us about that strategy and what are your thoughts there? Well, look, I mean, I think whether you are investing in a house to flip, whether you're going to live in that house for a period of time and rent out a portion of it, your agent, your broker, your banker, having that understanding of those options is critically important. And for someone who's getting into their house, it's, you know, whether it's their first time purchasing a home or whether they're getting into it to maybe rent part of it out, the strategy can work the same, right? Private mortgage insurance really can help you to save longer term by getting into that house sooner, by building that equity. Typically, we see you know, the average down payment is roughly 7%. And then we see that private mortgage insurance roll off between five and seven years, meaning that between the time that the individual purchases the house and that five to seven year mark, they've built up enough, enough equity, generally about 20% in that house, to actually have private mortgage insurance come off and you no longer pay those premiums your mortgage payments go down. So in the meantime, you've been able to hopefully capture some of that equity to secure, you know, either renting out rooms or sort of whatever your investment strategy is. But it can be a really meaningful strategy for so many people. Yeah, sure. 
So a real estate investor might be thinking about putting less than 20% down to do, let's call this a house hacking strategy, if you will, but thinking, well, why do I have to pay PMI? Credit worthy, I'm well capitalized, I you know, have a good history. From a lender's perspective, what is the need for PMI? Well, look, there's a lot of ample research and evidence that people who put less than 20% down are higher risk. And we just came through a financial crisis, and I don't think I have to remind anyone about the pain and sort of the burden that kind of came along with that. And so we actually, private mortgage insurance stood in that divide during that time. And for individuals who weren't able to repay their mortgage, we paid more than $50 billion in claims to the government-sponsored enterprises, the GSEs, and that's money that otherwise would have had to been borne by the taxpayer. So it's a critically important role. And to be able to kind of, you know, get into that home sooner to realize some of that equity appreciation and just to have sort of the stability that comes with home ownership. Yeah, sure. That, those that are many sense. of the benefits that you get for the price that you pay. Yeah, sure. That all makes sense. So now once you've swallowed this pill of, okay, I'm okay with paying PMI. How much is it? How does it work? You know, can you give us some kind of rough numbers around, you know, the cost of PMI? Absolutely. So, well, let's kind of break down the different options. There are a couple of different options in terms of mortgage insurance. Obviously, you've got private mortgage insurance and you can put as little as 3% down using private mortgage insurance. The cost is going to depend on how much you put down on you know, your credit profile of the individual. So it varies, but usually it's you know between 100 and a couple of hundred dollars a month. For FHA, which is a government-backed loan, you can put as little as 3.5% down. The biggest difference or one of the biggest differences between private mortgage insurance and FHA insurance is what I mentioned before, the fact that private mortgage insurance can be canceled after you've built up enough equity in the house. The premiums that you pay for FHA insurance generally stay on for the life of that loan. So that's a big distinction that a lot of individuals just will want to take into account as they're looking at those different options. Yeah, that is a good point you bring up. So with private mortgage insurance on the privatized route, that does fall off once you reach 20% equity in your property. But if you're going the FHA route, that PMI stays on there for the life of the loan. So maybe one way to get out of that would be to refinance. But other than that, those are kind of the critical differences in the PMI there, it sounds. That's right. That's one of the biggest distinctions between the two. And, you know, again, as we kind of think about long-term financial well-being of an individual, you know, we've developed some resources. There's a great website called uh, lowdownpaymentfacts.com where an individual can go and we put other companies' information on there because we really want the consumers to have the control of sort of looking at these different options, understand their own savings rate, understand sort of what their goal is in terms of having money in the bank after they've put a down payment down. And you can see sort of based on equity appreciation, based on the rent that you would have saved, sort of the bigger picture, longer term. And FHA can be a really good solution for many borrowers. But oftentimes, private mortgage insurance can be a little bit more competitive. Yeah, sure. So in addition to this PMI, Lindsay, what else does it take to qualify for a mortgage in today's environment? So this is kind of the key question. And this is one thing that we are really trying to share information to potential homebuyers about. Obviously, knowing your different options in terms of down payment is critical. Understanding sort of how to be home ready or understanding your credit profile, sort of what is the average uh, credit score of an individual who's coming in to get a loan, understanding the documentation that it's going to require. And just, you know, before you walk into the lender, 
having some of that information in your back pocket will make the process so much easier. But one of the biggest missing pieces, as I mentioned before, was that down payment piece. A lot of folks are going in thinking that they've got to put down basically their entire savings just to get close to that 20% number. When really, if they do the math, putting down a lesser amount for a down payment can sometimes be smarter in the longer term. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, oftentimes people might only know a few pieces of their own financial history. Perhaps they probably know their salary, they may know their credit score, but they don't really know how much of a mortgage they might qualify for, how much of a mortgage they can even afford. So knowing those things before you go talk with your lender would be certainly helpful in the long run, I would think. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's different limits in terms of sort of what qualifies for a GSE loan for their loan limits. There's, you know, it's upwards of $600,000, but knowing that depending on the region of the country that you're from is really helpful and important. Understanding your credit history and your credit file. And, you know, there's great podcasts all over the place about sort of understanding your FICO and knowing that maybe what you see on a credit report may not be what a lender sees. So just understanding how that's broken down. And ways to improve your credit if you need to improve your credit. One of the biggest things that we want to make sure that people understand is just because a lender says not right, you know, not no in terms of the mortgage approval, that might just mean not right now. And so really understand sort of what it will take to get you prepared for going back to that closing table, hopefully for the next time. Sure. And a couple of times you've mentioned GSC, Government Sponsored Enterprise. Tell us exactly what that means. So you know, today, especially after the financial crisis, most loans in the country are going through and eventually get some kind of government guarantee at the end of the day with FHA, or they go through the conventional market with the GSEs, the government-sponsored enterprises. And they have played such an incredible role, not just leading up to the crisis, but through the crisis. And then today, you know, really make up the vast majority of mortgages being done today. So all mortgages that go through the GSEs, they have a requirement that they've got to have uh, 20% or they've got to have uh, some kind of credit enhancement like mortgage insurance as part of them. They set requirements in terms of sort of what they'll accept from a risk profile. So, you know, set limits on credit scores and the average amount down and just a number of other guidelines that have to be adhered to by lenders who want to sell their loans to the GSEs. So they're a really important function within this housing ecosystem. And these GSEs are namely Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And so how does Fannie... Well, I guess backing up, are there additional GSEs in addition to those two or those are the two larger players? So there are. One of the... You know, a really important GSE is called the Federal Home Loan Bank System. There's 11 federal home loan banks around the country. And, you know, they may be a little bit lesser known, but they play an incredibly important function in terms of keeping liquidity into the financial system. And if you think about, I mean, this is probably more history than people want to know or hear <laughs> ever, but if you think about the evolution of our mortgage finance system, it really has kind of been born out of different crises. So the Great Depression led to, for example, the federal bank system where they wanted to make sure that there was liquidity and different, you know, regional crises and national housing crises have kind of led to the system that we have today. And it's not perfect, but it's a really good system that hopefully makes sure that, you know, credit-worthy and home-ready borrowers have access to mortgage finance. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So now that you've got these GSEs, there's a lot actually in the news recently about some reforms. So tell us a little bit about that and kind of the housing 
public policy landscape in today's kind of environment, if you will? Sure. Well, I mean, I will not take an entire segment or multiple segments to talk about the background of the GSEs. There's multiple dozens of books that can do that. But I just think it's so important, you know, let us not forget that in 2008, the U.S. Treasury Department and the regulator of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac put the GSEs into conservatorship after they provided almost $190 billion of federal support to the entities. And then for the last 11 years, the GSEs have stayed in conservatorship. And there's been a really long sort of raging debate about what to do next with the GSEs. But there clearly is a recognition about the importance of these institutions to not just the housing finance system, but to the financial system and to the global economy. So the administration had released a presidential memorandum late last year. And then just yesterday, two plans were released by the U.S. Department of Treasury and the Department of Housing and Urban Development that basically instructs the agencies and sort of the regulator of the GSCs in steps it should take to put the GSEs on a more long-term sort of sustainable footing. And so it's really important. And, and again, this kind of gets into the wonky details of the policy and regulatory world. But you know these plans are just so massively important when you think about that housing really makes up 20% of the nation's economy. It's a, you know, it, these are going to have a massive impact. So we're dissecting them now and trying to you know, come up with sort of an assessment of the direction of housing, but I think generally it's going to bode well for the financial system to have these in place. Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, this is hot off the press. This housing reform plan just came out as of yesterday at the time of this recording. There's a lot of speculation as to how that's going to impact things going forward. Do you have any kind of thoughts or speculation there? Well, I think, you know, one of the biggest things that they've talked about is increasing private capital to stand in front of the GSEs. So wanting to make sure that in the next downturn, not only do the GSEs hold a lot of capital, which today they don't, they hold almost none, or a very, very thin layer. So they want them to build capital, but they want, you know, private capital like mortgage insurance, and there's other options out there to have even more of a role standing in front of the taxpayer. So that's an important piece increasing transparency. And for all of us, right, whether you're on the consumer perspective or you're one of the many stakeholders kind of in the middle, we want to understand transparency around how the GSEs price mortgage credit risk and the capital that they hold against it, because that dictates pricing for everybody. And so we'll really have a much better sense about sort of how that pricing is works and sort of if it can be done better. So there's a lot of good that can actually come out of this report that ultimately should help homeowners and better inform consumers. Do you think this reform will have any tightening or loosening on lending requirements going forward? That's a great question. So there was a lot of discussion within the two plans about the qualified mortgage rule. And right now, the CFPB or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has released a comment request, basically for how, what changes they need to make to qualified mortgage rule, specific as it relates to the GSEs, because they do have some exemptions. And so there were some comments within these plans about sort of, you know, what mortgages should and how the administration and Treasury and FHFA, who's the regulator of the GSEs, should look at qualified mortgage and what mortgages are going to go through the GSEs. So my expectation is there's going to be a thorough review to make sure that the credit that's flowing through the GSEs is you know prudent credit and it's not overexposing the GSEs and the taxpayers to undo mortgage credit risk. But today, I think a lot of what's developed is largely working. 
a lot of what happened post-financial crisis and some of the rules that were implemented have really clamped down on you know abusive practices. And so we see a much better quality of lending and underwriting done today than we did pre-crisis. So hopefully those things just remain and we still have access to good affordable credit. Yeah, sure. Well, that's a lot to take in there. And it's borderline getting over my head. Now, if the audience <laughs> members you know, want to learn more about this, what are some good resources they could go to to learn about this? Anything you could recommend there? Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of good resources. You know, Mortgage Bankers Association, I think, does some really good work on the policy side. USMI.org, we put out uh, very, hopefully very thoughtful pieces to break this information down and really try to help not just stakeholder groups like bankers and others that work directly with mortgage insurers, but consumers understand how all of this is going to impact them at the end of the day. So, you know, there's many resources that will break this information down. Yeah, great. We'll link all those in the show notes. Appreciate you providing those. Now, Lindsay, if you were to sit down with a room full of real estate investors, let's say from beginning real estate investors to very seasoned investors, what would you tell them? Would you like them to know that maybe is maybe not common knowledge in that world? Well, I think just reminding them and maybe even informing them the important role that private mortgage insurance plays. And I think that there, you know, some people kind of think of it as a grudge purchase. But it really does help so many individuals get into a home sooner than they otherwise could. And we've talked about the fact that even though we all know it exists, there's a lot of people that just don't know that they can get into a home sooner if they don't put the full 20% down. And we, you know, just last year alone, we helped more than 1 million borrowers get into a home sooner than they otherwise would have. And nearly 60% of those borrowers were first-time home buyers, and 40% had annual incomes of $75,000 or less. So it's a really very important piece of the market that is served by having access to the conventional market through private mortgage insurance. And we want to make sure that that information is in the right hand of the folks in your network, and then ultimately in the hands of consumers. Yeah, great. That's great information. I think it's good to hear for the audience members listening in right now. Well, Lindsay, this has been a fun conversation, really interesting. Probably not a subject we broach near enough on the show about mortgages. It's just one of those things we kind of take as for granted. You know, you can go out, get a mortgage. It's always there. But in the back, there's a lot actually going on behind the scenes in terms of regulation and new policies and always kind of a changing environment. So it's good to kind of stay in tune and have somebody like you on the show every now and then to explain, you know, the details that we kind of gloss over as real estate investors. Well, Jacob, thank you very much. We appreciate being on the show. We appreciate the information you guys are putting out there. So thanks for having us. Absolutely. Lindsay, well, thanks so much. I look forward to having you back on in the near future to kind of talk more about these policy updates and what those are looking like and maybe say six to 12 months out. So let's do that. Sounds good. That'd be great. I look forward to it. Awesome. Thank you, Lindsay. Take care. Right, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Lindsay Johnson. Hey, I hope you're getting value from this podcast, and I really hope you got value from today's show. If you liked anything you heard, you can find all of the resources we mentioned in today's show in the show notes for further information and reading. As always, for more information and resources, you can visit www.jacobayers.com. Till next week, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific 
personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom LLC exclusively.